Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called To Live in Longing. It's a guest essay by Nora Gallagher. Nora Gallagher is the author of two memoirs about faith and doubt. First, Things Seen and Unseen, and then the second memoir called Practicing Resurrection. Her new novel, Changing Light, a love story set in 1945 in New Mexico in the shadow of the atom bomb, was published earlier this year. Nora is preacher-in-residence at Trinity Episcopal Church, Santa Barbara, and on the advisory board of the Yale Divinity School. Her essay, To Live in Longing, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December the 9th, 2007, the second Sunday in Advent. Here we are in Advent. The Advent season is a time of longing, of expectation, of hope for the long-awaited fulfillment of a promise. In the Advent season, we wait for the moment when heaven touches earth. That image, for some of us, is of heaven coming down from above. For others, it's of heaven rising up, infusing our tired world with new life. The Celts called this moment of when heaven meets earth thin space. In this season, we practice to breathe in thin space, to live in longing, to make a pathway for heaven into our hearts. In the second week of Advent, we ponder a man, John the Baptist, crying out in the wilderness. Each of us probably has an image of wilderness. My own is of the Brazos Wilderness in northern New Mexico, where I went as a ten-year-old child. A friend of mine's mother took four children on a backpack trip, on horseback, with a Native American guide from the Taos Pueblo. It was the first time I'd been away from my mother for more than a few nights. And so my image of wilderness will always be that trip. Wilderness was a place of beauty and terror, of tests of courage. I learned to ride a young horse, and when that horse decided to lie down in a stream, I learned how to jump off. I learned that I had to stand up for myself against the teasing of an older boy. There were no houses, and we had no maps. Sometimes the aspen trees grew so thickly together we had to put our feet up on our saddle horns. At night, the stars in the sky seemed as close as my hands, and Frank, our guide, used to sing to them in the language of his ancestors. Wilderness, a place where there are no houses and no maps, a place of beauty and tests of courage, a place where your guide may be someone entirely different from what you expected. And then a different kind of wilderness, this one in Santa Barbara, a soup kitchen where I worked for four years housed in my church's parish hall. We made the soup out of discarded vegetables given to us by the produce manager of a local Vons grocery store. 
On this salvage, we fed up to 250 people a day. In the kitchen, we had only one rule. If you were obnoxious, you had to go outside. We fed people with mental illness, prostitutes, the working poor, alcoholics, men and women on fixed incomes, and homeless teenagers on their way through town. Everyone was welcome. Once, a lovely woman dressed in a Kelly green cardigan and slacks, a so-called presentable person, if you will, came to eat lunch. She started talking to a volunteer from the Latter-day Saints about how she couldn't eat because someone was pointing at her head. Jackie, our volunteer, said to her very gently, If you sit down here for a while, I'll watch out for anyone pointing at your head. I'll be right here, rinsing trays. The woman sat down and began to eat. She ate for a few minutes, and then she reached down to pick up something off the floor. When she straightened up, she said, Someone pointed at my head while I was leaning over. Someone pointed at my head. The volunteer, Jackie, walked over to her and touched her very carefully on the arm and said, I'll make sure they don't do that again. The woman smiled, and then she said, I'm not always like this. Jackie replied, I know. In the kitchen, I saw a man barely able to concentrate because of mental illness play the Moonlight Sonata on the piano. I watched another man throw himself between two men to prevent a fight. We had so many offers to help from the men and women we fed, we couldn't use them all. Thank you for letting me help, an elderly man said to me. I need to feel useful. And so, a different kind of wilderness in Santa Barbara. In our community kitchen, we had no maps and different guides. It was a place of great chaos and questions. In that kitchen, the moment when heaven met earth had more immediacy. We were nearer to the brink. In the kitchen, I learned about the bedrock truths of the gospel. Why Jesus sat down at the table with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and so-called nuisances and nobodies. I learned things about faith in the kitchen that I couldn't learn anywhere else. In this Advent season, let us all name our wilderness. Where must we go? Where is the place we are called that has no maps and different guides? Where is the place that reveals new truths, new awakenings? In the wilderness, John the Baptist cries, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. When I thought about preparing the way, what came into my mind was sweeping the path outside my study door. I rarely do this. Usually I'm running from one thing to the next with barely enough time to even notice the path, least of all what's on it. But when I do sweep the path, first of all, I slow down. I like to sweep. I like watching the pathway clear, the bricks emerge. 
Sometimes I remember watching the friend who built the path lay down the bricks on the sand. Esther DeWall, a historian of Celtic spirituality, says that one of the gifts of Celtic life was that it was a practice in which ordinary people in their daily lives took the tasks that laid a hand, but treated them sacramentally, as pointing to a greater reality which lay beyond them. It's an approach to life which we have been in danger of losing, he said, this sense of allowing the extraordinary to break in on the ordinary. Sweeping the sidewalk, when I'm slowed down to watch for the bricks, to remember the friend who made the path, becomes a form of prayer. And that, in turn, becomes a way of allowing the extraordinary to break in on the ordinary. Isn't that what we're preparing for in waiting this Advent season? The extraordinary in the ordinary. We often settle for less in our lives. We get too impressed with strength and security or with the status quo. We're not willing to stop for a moment or go out into the wilderness. An experienced rabbi was once asked why so few people were finding God. He replied that people were not willing to look that low. The one who brings heaven to earth this Advent season is the one who lights up the ordinary with the extraordinary. John the Baptist was waiting for a great religious leader, a man who might very well overthrow the Roman Empire and restore the Jewish people to their lost glory, a master, one who would cause everyone to bow down before him. John would grovel at his feet. But the one who was coming into the world didn't cause men and women to bow down or to grovel before him. This one welcomed children, ate with anyone. He treated everyone as if they were a human being. He shared in our common life, ate our food and drink, healed the sick, the blind, and the lame. And on the last night of his life, he knelt down at the feet of his friends. The great good news of the gospel is the world is that the world it reveals to us is upside down from what John expected and from what we expect even today. After his conversion, St. Francis saw the world in a new way. He saw everything upside down, said a theologian friend at Claremont College. He was not enamored at the strength and security of well-grounded towers, walled city-states, and impressive cathedrals. Rather, he saw everything hanging over nothing. And he was astonished, but grateful, that everything didn't fall down. We often settle for less because we're not willing to take a tumble. We're not willing to stand on our heads. We're not willing to listen for the smallest, most tender voice. The one who is coming into the world this Advent season is not an all-powerful leader or arrogant master. The one who is coming into the world kneels at the feet of his friends, washes them tenderly, and goes to his death with one last request. You must love one another.
Love is the power that makes things, that allows things to cohere, to coalesce, to reconcile. Love is the power that creates out of the chaos in questions of a wilderness, a restored and resurrected world. Love is the power that answers our Advent longing. A guest essay by Nora Gallagher, To Live in Longing. For books this week, I review a book called Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America, with introductory essays by James Allen, Hilton Owls, Congressman John Lewis, and Leon Litwack. It's published in Santa Fe, New Mexico, by Twin Palms Publisher, in the year 2000, 209 pages. Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, but no words can describe, let alone explain, the horrific crimes against humanity documented in this photographic history of lynching in America. And not merely hangings, if I can use that word, but burnings, castration, mutilation, and sadistic tortures like cutting unborn babies from their mother's womb. Nor do the four introductory essays and the notes to the 98 photographic plates make for easy reading. This is a significant, if revolting, part of American history, even if high school history courses never mention it. In the late 19th and early 20th century, writes Leon Litwack, two or three black southerners were hanged, burned at the stake, or quietly murdered every week. In the, 19, 18, in the 1890s, lynchings claimed an average of 139 lives each year, 75% of them black. The numbers declined in the following decades, but the percentage of black victims rose to 90%. Between 1882 and 1968, an estimated 4,742 blacks met their deaths at the hands of lynch mobs. And these are only the documented cases and don't include the so-called legal lynchings of perverted justice or private posses on nigger hunts. Some lynchings were done in isolated and remote areas by psychopaths, but as this volume shows, they were not only public events, but public spectacles that were advertised, described by lurid media headlines such as Colored Man Roasted Alive, and attended by thousands of voyeuristic spectators. They were carried out by and celebrated by leading citizens, state and federal congressmen, and leaders in business and church. Our American Christians, wrote the anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. There was no due process of law in most of these lynchings, nor any attempt to hide the identity of the executioners. 
The U.S. Postal Service was even, even happy to mail commemorative postcards with pictures of lynchings. Trains provided free services to the spectacles. Yes, there were lone dissenting voices, but far too few. For a narrative history of lynching beyond this photographic history, see the book by Philip Dre, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America. Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America, from the year 2000. For films this week, I review Into the Wild, from the year 2007. Writer and director Sean Penn recreates the story of Chris McCandless, a disaffected young man whose story was made famous in John Krakauer's book of the same title. After graduating from Emory University in Atlanta, Chris McCandless gave away his savings of $24,000 to Oxfam, burned the last few bills in his wallet, left his family without any word at all, and they eventually found his way to the Alaskan wilderness after bumming his way across the country and giving himself a new name, Alexander Supertramp. His body was eventually found by some moose hunters in an abandoned bus in remote Alaska, along with some books and notes, where he either starved to death or poisons himself by accidentally eating toxic plants. This film is long at 145 minutes, and at times Penn romanticizes McCandless as the hero who rejects the evils of society. He was also a confused young man acting out his anger against his dysfunctional parents. This is a good film about a fascinating story that has continued to garner controversy and attention since Krakauer made it famous. A single note that was found with McCandless's body provides a very fitting moral to his tragic end. Into the Wild from the year 2007. And finally for this Advent season, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. It's called The House of Christmas. G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to roam. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand, with shaking timber and shifting sand, grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun, and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chance and honor and high surprise. But our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam. 
Only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago. In a place no chart nor ship can show, under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is, is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come. To an older place than Eden, and a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless, and all men are at home. The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December the 9th, 2007, the second Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.